Hello and welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of me and this little guy that I just met. <laughs> <laughs> you see this guy? The mini man you're referring to? <laughs> mini man. I was watching an interview of them the two like uh, of uh, of mm-hmm. Chris Burton and Alex Forbes where the interviewer kept referring to it as the wee man <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I had this joke prepared because it got it in my head that its name is wee man and they like recently announced the titles for the next three mysteries um, the last of which is the return of the mini man which in my head then became the return of wee man and I was prepared to be like which I was pretty sure we already got this year with freaking right. jackass four ever um but of course he is the mini man so <laughs> it's all for naught precisely um well then maybe this isn't a good place to start but what's going on with oni press have you heard about this uh i know they laid a bunch of people off that's pretty that's much all. it <laughs> yep okay well i just i just because i saw on their website that like they're moving to oni press for their next three books yes i was like oh is that an uh-oh well just sounds like the company's not doing too well um, I don't know. They're like, they're independent, but like one of the, I, f- I feel like we already talked about their like weird whole deal on here once because they Having merged, like kind of merger yeah, they merged yeah. with Lion Forge, but as far as I know, they are still just called Oni. <laughs> sure. Or I, I see now the merged company Oni Lion Forge. Yeah. I don't know. They, they publish a lot of good books that I like. I am not super up to date on their, uh, you know, internal corporate machinations. Um, of course, they're the home of the Rick and Morty comics. So, of course, I know that's of particular interest to you. Yeah. Did they ever resolve that whole Kanoko Murrow situation? <sighs> that is such a deep cut <laughs> that I feel like I can't even address it. Did you Google that to look it up? No, Please tell me. Are you serious? <laughs> What? I couldn't for a million dollars have told you the name of the main character from the like 1998 video game Oni. It was 2001, please. And please. did you know that, uh, do you know who developed that game? No. Is it Rare? No, it's Bungie. Oh, very good. Cool game. Very cool game. They really should make a sequel. It would be cool in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, great game. Everyone should check it out. I assume with PS2 emulators being what they are nowadays, you could uh, play it on your phone. <laughs> the, wait, there's an anniversary edition. What? Whoa. Okay, I got to look into this later. We're not talking about that today. You have to have a retail copy. As, uh, I don't know. Okay, okay, okay. We're discussing today <laughs> something totally irrelevant to the 2001 video game Oni. We are taking a break. In between miniseries. And I see that you appear to be on a tropical island. Sure. To kick back and relax. (laughs) Famous Discord background, Wumpus Vacation. (laughs) He could use one after Luke chopped his freaking arm off. (laughs) Okay, I'll allow it. Um, We, of course, are about to head into our miniseries on Tilly Walden, which is very exciting. But in the interim, we are covering some books that I know nothing about. (laughs) Uh, And in fact, 
just uh, came <laughs> arrived in my mail one day, <laughs> courtesy of uh, a certain co-host. Yes, that's me. Uh, I did that. Yes, we are covering the Hobtown Mystery Stories, uh, specifically before Tilly Walden. We are doing Volume 1 today. We're doing it, The Case of the Missing Men by this Chris Burton now. and Alexander Forbes. It's entering your ears as we speak, <laughs> zapping across your cranium. Killing brain cells actively, no doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these books, you've never uh, heard of them prior to my suggestion, I gather. No, certainly not. They are, uh, I'm not sure if I'd characterize it as like a deep cut per se, because they got like some some kind of like weird press, like Jason Manzoukas was very into these, it seems. That's funny. (laughs) And mentioned them on like a bunch of different podcasts, which I feel like I did know. And then in the next volume, he's like in the acknowledgments as like a special (laughs) thanks to. Um, So I think that they probably because of that, um, that very active boosting by him have reached more people than they might have otherwise. But uh, yeah, it's some primo uh, Canadian content. These first Mm -hmm. two coming from uh, notable Canadian publisher Conundrum Press, home of my beloved Paul books. (laughs) Sure. I mean, (laughs) that dope smoking alien's got a lot of things going on. (laughs) Yeah. What what can I say? Good book. I really, really liked it. Um, It's crazy. (laughs) It is crazy. I think this is my fourth read, and every time I read it and I'm like, crazy how good this book is and then like put it aside and like forget about it and then when i reread it i am like i remember that i think it's really good but then as i go through i'm like this is so good (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know if i'd go that far but i mean maybe i mean i think it's really really good like i'm not like this didn't blow my mind or anything but i did think it was really good i mean like it really it feels to me like it's almost like outsider art ish yeah it is um i i like saw them describe it as punk rock (laughs) Um, sure which i was like yeah kind of i guess so it definitely does have like i think a big part of it is that the art is like very obviously kind of carrying some influence from chester brown and like i don't know if if forbes would say like specifically kevin o'neill who did like from hell but it has always really reminded me of From Hell with just, like, the insanely, like, cross-hatched, very, like, mm-hmm. heavy, dark lines. But those being, like, very prominent underground-type creators, I think it does carry just, like, a lot of that, like, underground energy with it. Yeah, and, like, it does have influences, I would say, but, I mean, like, it doesn't really feel that much like anything else. Like, I mean, like, I feel like you have to invoke that most dreaded of adjectives lynchian Mm -hmm. well of course we mentioned i think last time at the very first words on the back cover are nancy drew meets david lynch in this mystery thriller blah 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 which i'm not sure who decided on that descriptor not that i don't think it is inappropriate or not that i do think it's inappropriate but it seems like Burton and Forbes prefer to call it maritime gothic, which I think is like maybe more fitting. I don't know. See, the problem is like, I haven't seen a ton of Lynch stuff. So to say something is or isn't Lynchian, I'm always kind of like, if you say so. (laughs) Well, the the Lynchian-ness of it is like, 
small t- small town like insular community mm-hmm. like belies weird stuff <laughs> a like grosser underbelly with like supernatural elements mm-hmm. but also sort of like weird humor it is certainly gross <laughs> and like a juxtaposition of tone which it certainly carries a lot with it i mean i feel like this is like i almost feel like we've talked about this in the podcast before but there is a certain type of humor which I like the the comparison I always think of is Harka Vagrant, mm-hmm. which is just like humor that's like not having punctuation is funny. <laughs> yes, that uh, definitely is is part of it. And they do actually cite Kate Beaton as an influence, not necessarily like on this book specifically, so much as just sort of like being like artists who live in Halifax making comics. It's like, right. well, and of course, Kate Beaton. And the other person who they mentioned along those lines, would you care to take a guess? A Halifax area based uh, comics artist creator. It's of course Darwin Cook, baby. They uh, they name check as uh, a big influence wow. again. Like not not that I would look at this and be like, and of course Darwin is all over this, but um, sure. but Forbes, yeah, very specifically mentioned him as someone who he was reading a lot while he was working on it because. Cook had like relatively recently relocated back to Halifax from LA and was very, you know, involved in kind of like the arts scene and and was sort of like around. So I don't know if they ever met or if they ever like, you know, had a had a chance to kind of, I guess, have have the idea exchange or whatever. But but he was in the zeitgeist of uh, of these two while they were working on this book. So I thought that was a funny coincidence that I had no idea about when I originally sort of like lined this up. Yeah, I guess you can see it. I mean, like the art style can vary so drastically because mm-hmm. like you can have like such incredibly detailed, especially, you know, like the, these like establishing shots can be so hyper detailed and then you can have stuff that does seem a little more sketchy so i guess like that is kind of what's in parker as well Mm -hmm. i think you see less of like the more detailed illustration in parker where like you know you you have like i'm thinking like the beginning of the hunter you have like the fully rendered like new york city and it's Mm -hmm. very detailed Mm -hmm. and like you get more of that in this book but i do kind of see it in like the sort of like deliberate underdrawing almost yeah i do make sense i think that that's like an important sort of like part of the whole tone of it is that like in terms of the aesthetic of the art style it is in some ways kind of simplistic or cartoony or like it's it is kind of like if someone took a hark the uh, hark of vagrant comic and then was like and now i'm going to cross hatch like everything that isn't somebody's face unto infinity and so you have this sort of like this very sort of like simplistic or, or or like cartoonish veneer sitting on top of these like extremely dense and detailed landscapes and people as well sometimes but like there's just like so many lines in it and I feel like it gives it a lot of like weight and atmosphere that something that would be like a little bit more minimalist wouldn't be yeah absolutely and like you know I'm thinking of like there's a scene where he's like in the metal shop making his zip gun yes very and cool. That, and it has like a super detailed rendering of him just like looking through like the, the tube he has mm-hmm. just made or whatever. And that was like, I was like, whoa, like, this is so detailed <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. And then like the rest of the time it's just like, and then what if a guy had a crazy eye? <laughs> there are a lot of guys who have a crazy eye, which, uh, you know, we love it. We're fans. Yeah, I do. I do feel like this is in some ways kind of like ahead of its time in terms of like 
I think we have referred to like Brubaker calling it like post YA when he does his book Friday, his book Friday (laughs) acknowledged, which is sort of like in this similar vein of taking, I think Encyclopedia Brown is really the primary influence on that one, but it's kind of like, what if Encyclopedia Brown was in college and like things became suddenly very adult for him? Um, Sure. And then even just thinking about other things, like I think Afterlife with Archie kind of also was like an early one of these that was like, what if something innocent, but like creepy in the comic side of things. And then subsequently Riverdale, I feel like it was was (laughs) (laughs) the first season of Riverdale, at least I feel like the whole like Nancy Drew, but David Lynch thing, or like it's Archie in Twin Peaks type of like, that was really the, the kind of like log line or the pitch that, people were were getting for Riverdale and something like the kid detective, uh, the Adam Brody joint. I, I do feel like these sorts of like, I, I don't like it. Not, it's not sort to- of a dark and gritty. And it's a bit, it's a little bit like what they were doing to fairy tales in like yeah. the 2000s. Yeah. But like, and that, but, know, but like mean that applied to a very, yeah. But I do feel like applying it more specifically to these sorts of like, children's novels of like of a certain era or these like tropes of children's literature has much more so become kind of like in vogue and i think especially probably when they first started working on this which it they i think it was in development for like seven years or something like that it was i think a very like original idea and i do think that like in terms of execution of that general premise it does it a lot better than most of the other kind of like stabs I've seen at it just in terms of like leveraging the juxtaposition for like really strong thematic effect um, and narrative effect and like just seeming like they genuinely enjoy the tropes of those sort of like children's books as much as they enjoy the tropes of like the supernatural horror and suspense and like you know the grim and gritty side of things yeah and you know like we sort of said like finding some humor out of that juxtaposition of tone mm-hmm. and you know the way the the way the characters talk i think it's just like inherently yeah. very funny <laughs> it is an extremely they... funny book like it i don't often laugh out loud when i'm reading but like there are several points in this when i do just like <laughs> laugh out loud seemingly every time i read it i feel like the one that really gets me is when the principal is like destroying all their evidence and giving them detention and then the two like football brothers are like but we've got a game against eel creek next week and then the other teacher's like eel creek jim (laughs) that that makes me laugh so hard just like the tiny text bubble from the other teacher that just says eel creek jim (laughs) it just like gets me so good (laughs) it is like a book full of asides and then also like so much craziness like in the lettering yeah and or, the, like the way balloons are structured and stuff yeah because like you have like the pep rally or like the all school assembly where they have it structured so that the principal's like speech bubble ju- you can like just see the bottom row of text as uh dana and sam are like having this whispered conversation in the bleachers and then all of a sudden you get the full thing and he's like and now as promised here's your special treat and it's like page turn <laughs> coach wood singing, me a buttercup. it's so funny <laughs> Uh, I do also think that one of the big like strengths of the book is that these things which are like extremely funny 
especially kind of like in the first third or even the first half, as you go on, they will continue to do things that I feel like in the when when the mystery is not as sort of like fully developed, you would find it really funny. But as you kind of like get the broader sense of like who the missing men are and what they're doing and like kind of the broader conspiracy that like permeates through the town, there are these things that read like jokes, but like now have become sort of like part of the horror that it's like, you know, you you just like recontextualize all the characters and it's like, how can people still like be like this when they sort of like know what's going on or in light of like, I feel like the radio host, they've got like this, like <laughs> really good. I, I can't remember their names, but it's like a classic, like X and X in the morning on like 89. I think it's like Heather and Martha or yeah. something. <laughs> one of them, one of them is a man on 89.9, the hob, but like they're describing like a recent death <laughs> and the one guy is just like, ha We've had another fatal accident. He he like, oops, a Marshall. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's like, it is funny, but it's also just Randy like Randy and Heather. Randy and Heather, yeah. And and she's just like, oh stop, Randy, come on. Which is like, again, all very funny, but like in light of, you know, that comes after like they find the body like stuffed into the chimney, which is such a like disturbing and disorienting scene and it like is still kind of funny but also now is like almost more contributive to the horror side of things and like it just kind of gets like less and less funny as time goes on until it's like sort of fully just exclusively horrifying even the things that yeah. seemed funny before well even like the mini man like mm-hmm. when you first see oh him, he's just like... so funny when you first see him <laughs> and like when when denny like does the drawing of him and like yeah, the, the part where uh, oh, what's oh, what's her name? I always forget her name. Pauline. Yeah, yeah. Does when, the when drawing is, of Fleiss. <laughs> when she's no, when she is like showing pictures of like, was it this person? Was it mm-hmm. this person? And then at one point, it's like a cartoon elf with yeah. finger guns. <laughs> <laughs> really good. Um, I just before we go any further, I just want to say. Uh, I receive regular Riverdale missives, uh-huh. which I believe I've read before on this podcast. You uh, did read, I think, a uh, episode <laughs> synopsis of something <laughs> right. recently that was like, it's like Cheryl Blossom executes Archie. Yeah. So the the most recent episode is. Reggie and Kevin are on the verge of being executed. Jughead <laughs> has discovered he has the power to open portals and has traveled to Rivervale. It is revealed that Percival is an immortal sorcerer from Rivervale <laughs> who was transported to Riverdale due to the explosion last season. And that's why supernatural events have been on the rise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a show that has truly jumped the shark. Yeah. So, so I guess, like I said, I'm curious to think, like, how do you think, given that I do feel like even almost by the time it was published, having the logline Nancy Drew meets David Lynch would be like borderline eye roll inducing. Do you think that like it kind of meets the meets the challenge of that overcomes that possible, I guess, stigma does the does the tone balancing effectively? Yeah, I mean, like. It is, like I said, like, it feels so outside of the norm. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's why, like, even though you can say, like, oh, it's taking inspiration from David Lynch, like, I did sort of pick that up pretty readily, um, even without knowing that it was on the back cover <laughs> as I was reading it. But, like, even saying that, it, like, you can't really say, like, they're doing this thing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing really that you can directly compare it to. And I think that really goes a long way in terms of, like, you know helping to distance itself or like to feel like it's not falling into tropes because it is like 
sort of playing with tropes. I do. I think the reason it is so successful is that it feels less like it's trying to be Lynchian and more like it's trying to be Nancy Drewy and and like Hardy Boysy. And they're like kind of like in some ways more concerned with like nailing the authenticity of that and then injecting some of that like horror and suspense into it as opposed to being like, let's let's just like treat these as like, you know, stock and trade young adults circa like 1930 characters and then put them into our lynchian like horror that we've designed yeah and to to uh reference another director david (laughs) uh, there's something that sort of came up when the latest david cronenberg movie came out that was like you know some people were sort of mixed on it and i saw a tweet that was like like a lot of people don't like it because like they wanted something cronenbergian and they Mm -hmm. instead got a cronenberg movie (laughs) i feel like it's like they're not trying to do anything Lynchian and obviously like David Lynch is sort of like hallmarked by it's not like David Lynch has like a predictable set of tropes he likes to right. use like he is like famously extremely imaginative and like will go go completely out of left field and do things that you never could have thought of and so like I think that's sort of what you're getting at when you say Lynchian rather than being like this reminds me of the scene in Twin Peaks when this happened it's just mm-hmm. like they're doing some crazy stuff that I never would have <laughs> thought of. And that, like, reminds me of how David Lynch would do that. Yeah. And so that's, like, rather than it being, like, evocative of David Lynch specifically, it's sort of just working in that same kind of realm. Right. They talked in an interview about trying, like, not so much trying to have it be horror as dismay or, like, dismay is sort of, like, the brand of horror that they're going for. And then that kind of, like, encapsulated by the phrase is that there with the kind of like prime example of that being Denny at the pioneer days parade being like, look at that thing. And everyone around him is like, what are you talking about? And then he had just has to be like, is that there? Like, am I actually seeing this? And if so, like, why isn't anyone else reacting to it? And then As I it think- later turns out he was seeing an evil shawarma. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer to think of it as some sort of like fungal beehive. Sure. And, and again, I do think that like part of why this works so well is that all of that stuff is very much in service of kind of like bigger themes and bigger ideas where the notion of these, like they're, they're, they're really capitalizing on the kind of like young adult fiction tropes to have a, a story that's ultimately about kind of like the optimism of youth and like the belief as young people that you know, the world can be a certain way and that like change is possible and that like, you know, you can, you can be a difference maker in your community and it's constantly being juxtaposed to all these adults in their lives who like don't take them seriously, don't believe them are, are sort of like resigned to things just being the way they are with like the, the few exceptions being the members of the game club as kind of (laughs) <laughs> Again, also a very good, uh, good bit. Um, this book is so crazy. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but like, I think you see it most clearly when the two brothers are in jail and the chief of police kind of like lays it out sort of directly to be like, eventually you're going to be like me because you'll have like grown up and understand that like it's better for things to be this way. And that kind of like youthful resistance to the idea that you should be okay with things just like being this way is, is all sort of part and parcel with that idea of like, why, how can the adults around me like look at this thing? Can they see it? And if so, why are they just like not reacting to it? 
is like, you know, you take it to a certain amplification when the thing that you see is <laughs> like a crazy little gnome <laughs> elf thing dancing around with finger guns. But that's ultimately emblematic of just like the the problems that plague like a small rural community that get ignored so that life can just kind of like go on. Sure. Um, do we want to do a plot summary? Boy. <laughs> I feel like I can tackle this. Sure. Lay it on me. Okay. So there's this kid named Sam who is the son of Sam Finch, who is the son of Max Finch, who is like the founder of a multinational aviation corporation. <laughs> uh called finch aviation who has gone missing uh and sam is on a quest to find him and in doing so he comes across this basically like already formed group of like teen detectives Mm -hmm. uh which is denny his brother what's his brother's name brennan ah yes brennan um and then pauline and dana What's her last name? <laughs> uh, Dana's last name is Nance. Sure. Nance E. Drew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, if, what if someone's name was Drew E. Nance? Uh-huh. That'd be good. Um, he meets up with them. They sort of start investigating, and they sort of come across this, like, Missing Men, which is the name of the book. Uh, and it's, like, a trend of people who have gone missing recently and like presumably dead they keep seeing these like strange sightings they find a bunch of dead bodies people are being murdered and then essentially what it eventually comes down to is that these missing men are being kidnapped and brainwashed by the alderman who is like the head of this basically like shriners club Mm -hmm. the propeller club yes the propeller club which is like a local like institution Uh, And they are, like, being hypnotized and trained to become these killers for these people. And they are doing so because also there is, like, a supernatural force which exists. There's, like, a population control, like, (laughs) curse. (laughs) Yeah. So there's this supernatural force that, like, comes out when there are too many people in the town, which seems to be, like, around 2,000 seems to, like, be the cutoff number. Yes. And this is all taking place in a coastal Nova Scotia town, as we all know. Yes, of course. Uh, Hobtown. Of course. And there's also... So so basically, like, these two forces are simultaneously working, and that's sort of why the mystery has been obfuscated for them for so long, because they were sort of searching for two people, not realizing they were searching for two people. And also, there's a, this other group called the Game Club, which is like a collection of good people, including Sam's father and Dana's father, who are like in service of trying to stop the evil going on around the town. And so eventually there's, there's like some sort of contest where like when the little gnome thing comes out. So this is what I, what I'm not totally clear on is like the propeller club is like on the gnomes team, but it seems like them doing their own thing to kill people is like a new wrinkle for like this circle of the, of the game. Whereas the game club's role seems to always have been to like find the person who is like supernaturally compelled to kill and kill them. (laughs) Yes. Because the whole reason that the propeller club are doing this now is because like they either think or know that like, 
they like basically we have to call the population so rather than allowing this like supernatural forces kill people at random we will kill people who like it is politically or whatever advantageous to us to kill and that way like they like the curse will be satisfied mm-hmm. and we will also like get our thing uh or get what we want rather and so it ends with basically like a bunch of people in the town getting arrested um they fight a supernatural english teacher mm-hmm. uh there's like a, a funky shawarma as i previously alluded to <laughs> funky, funky winter shawarma. shawarma. <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly um and then you know, there's a big climactic battle. They try and kill Dana and her father, and a bunch of stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And also, there's a guy named Dilan. Yes, good old Dilan. He is uh, like technically a vice president of Finch Aviation, but in function is sort of like who who would be like the comparable character? I feel like there's someone in Annie that really like calls him to mind for me. And I mean, like he is like not to go there, but he is sort of like the like manservant kind of character yeah he is a bit of a like a butler in the artemis fowl <laughs> sense <laughs> of being the the sort of like he's not strong and silent but he is this like hyper competent um bodyguard slash manservant uh type of you know assistant to max and then in his absence becomes sort of like the the person who enables the detective club to like kind of traverse the adult world because he's sort of the one adult who knows what's going on and believes them and thinks that they're like doing the right thing. So anytime there's an issue where it's like, where's your parents? He can step in and be like, I of course am their parent. (laughs) Right. I'm just reading here that there is a character in the film in the 1982 film, Annie, uh, and is in the comic strip, but was not in the original musical, named Punjab. <laughs> that sounds like it could be who I'm thinking of. One of Daddy Warbucks's bodyguards. He is, in fact, on the Heroes Wiki. <laughs> <laughs> what are his hobbies? He does not have any list of hobbies, however. Mm. it is <laughs> He is under the list of all Sony Pictures heroes. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Him being called Punjab does feel very similar to how all of the townspeople call Dilan that Hindu, H-I-N-D-O-O. <laughs> sure. He he definitely feels to me most like he's sort of like a carryover from the sort of like pulpy nature of those books, which I do think is like, those those are sort of like weirdly like pulp novels for kids and i can like kind of easily envision that like a kid who grows up reading like the hardy boys or tom swift or whatever in like 1925 then in like 1935 is like ah yes like a fu manchu novel or like you know the, that sort of um very pulpy property that they just would like graduate to as they aged up sorry i'm just looking at the heroes wiki now the 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 order in which the the heroes from Sony Pictures are listed is so crazy um, because it starts with Annie from Annie, Daddy Warbucks, uh, Grace Farrell who's also from Annie I guess, and then goes on to list uh, oh John Rambo, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and then goes into. Peter Venkman, Ray Stance, Egon Spengler, Winston Zeddemore, Dana Barrett, Lewis Tully, 
Jamie Melnitz Slimer. And then the next one is Sarah Williams from Lap. <laughs> oh, the old Slimer to Sarah Williams. <laughs> yeah, I I think that just like there's so much it it would be so easy for this book to be bad, I guess, is like how I feel about it, but instead it's so. so it's so good. Um just it's, like it just it does feel very like <sighs> I, I feel like a lot of times the goal with these is to be like, what if like, you know, this fantastical concept, but like it's real life, man. And that often translates to the very kind of like grim and gritty type of thing. Whereas this does feel more like what if Nancy drew in real life, but in, in the sense where it's like the characters just like feel very human and like the experience of like, they're like high school detective club. Well, very sort of like heightened by the fact that, you know, it's taking this inspiration from young adult novels and pulp novels and things like that does still have this like element of like verisimilitude to it. And the characters are deepened so much just in terms of like, like having the two brothers be like indigenous and invoking kind of like their relationship to that heritage and like the relationship between the indigenous people of the area and like the town itself adds so much depth, um, giving Dana and Pauline this sort of like tense, like not frenemies, but like, you know, this, this weird sort of friendship where uh, Pauline doesn't feel valued in it. And, um Dana feels like kind of alone in it in some ways like she has like accidentally set herself like on too high of a pedestal to actually have any connections that's all good stuff yeah I, I, it feels like it normally if someone was kind of like trying to go for this vibe or this like type of story they would rely on the characters being very tropey and while they do kind of invoke some of the tropes right at the beginning especially with Sam being like the kid genius who like invents you know, this special wheelchair for himself at the end and like the uh, the Finch phone and and his zip gun and things like that. It like just like very quickly kind of like puts those things not in the rearview mirror, but they just don't really come up unless they're very relevant to kind of whatever's happening. And other than that, they just feel like very normal teenagers who all have like distinct personalities and distinct characters and it just feels like a lot of thought went into like who each of these people are and how they relate to each other, especially within like the core five characters. Yeah, definitely. I guess for me, like I can't really imagine a bad version of this because <laughs> I can't really imagine a version of this. That's like, not this, if that right. makes sense. Like, I mean, this sort of gets it is back very to what singular. I've... Yeah. That's sort of like my general feeling on it is just that like, it is so singular and so itself and like, I think one of its great strengths is just, like, it has such a firm understanding of its tone mm -hmm. and, like, knows what it is in that way that, like, the execution feels so seamless in a way, even though it's so, like, outside of what, you know, <laughs> of anything, really, mm -hmm. that, like, I've read before, that that, like, allows it to sort of feel familiar in that way and obviously playing with, like, the tropes of both of those genres that it sort of occupies helps with that as well but it is so like it's just so itself that like i can't like you know i can usually imagine like i could imagine what a bad spider-man comic is like or whatever <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's like i can't imagine a, a different version of this because it's like what would 
you do differently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do also, I don't know, the art feels to me just like a tour de force <laughs> because it's crazy. It a is, lot of it is, it like is crazy. I can't imagine how labor intensive it must have been. Like the, the, just like, the raw number of lines in any given panel is just like so crazy and I think is used in a way that is so effective in terms of just like turning every place they go into this like it, it can be like very lush and beautiful or it can be very like shadowy and foreboding but like no matter where you go it feels very like textured and like you know I, I feel like I keep saying dense which really is kind of the the word I'm looking for. And then just like the storytelling feels also like so economical, especially like kind of having to play in structures that are a little unusual sometimes. Like it jumps back and forth in time a couple times to like do sort of like almost a Stephen Kingy type thing where they sort of like tell you, they show you the aftermath and have someone kind of like be like, and of course, like these things happened and then they sort of jump back to where you were in the story right. and like fill in the blanks. So there's like the interview between Brennan and the police officer where they're asking him about kind of like what happened with Sam escaping from the hospital and the events of like the Pioneers Pioneer Days Fair or like closer to the end when you have the news reporter who like interviews all these people about like what happened and then you sort of like I said, get this, this sort of like filled in action. I don't know. It's, it's obviously a very productive partnership, I guess is how I'd put it, where I know the Burton and Forbes were as slash are like friends since like first grade and have been like long-term, like grown together as artists across kind of like the course of their entire life. So I feel like they do have a sort of chemistry that is very evident just like on the page. Yeah. And the thing that stands out a lot to me about the art is sort of, like, the places it chooses to be simple, almost. Because, mm-hmm. like, like, the one that really sticks out to me is the jail cell, where, like, only, like, small patches of the brick is, like, drawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of, like, the brick wall, where it says, like, it's mostly a white background, and then you sort of have, like, the suggestion of brick in, like, little points, like, across the wall. Mm -hmm. And then, like, right next to this, like, partially rendered brick wall, you have, like, (laughs) a complete prison cell with, like, like, a bunch of bars that obviously had to, like, be drawn by hand and, like, rendered as 3D objects Mm -hmm. and, like, look so detailed. That just, like, that sort of combination of, like, simplicity and complexity that's, like, it makes it feel so intentioned rather than something where it's, like, they, you know, even something like Parker, which I think looks really cool, but it's like he is sort of going out there trying to do like almost trying to do as little work as possible in some way. <laughs> yeah. And whereas this is like if if they wanted to, they would have like created the full brick wall, but like they just chose to leave that out because they like it better. And this is of course during the scene in which uh someone flies off the ground when they do a fart which is a classic uh, <laughs> i did I mean. uh, there there were some snapchats that went out uh, as a result of that for me certainly yeah and and like i think if there is kind of an area where i maybe see a lot of the cookie and influence and cookie in um and this oh. is potentially also maybe colored a little bit by this this interview that i listened to with forbes but 
he talked basically about like how one of the big sort of like muscles he had to flex with this was like thinking of his like drawing of characters as acting, which I feel like is something that we brought up a lot as being a Mm. real like kind of strong point of cooks. And I do, I think that like the character acting in this is really good. I think that he has done like a really good job of making all the characters distinct from each other. Um, And he also talks about how like we're in a small town. So like as much as possible, we try to avoid creating new characters. And like if there's a character who we've already shown before that we can like recycle for something, then we will. And he talked about how like, for example, the two ladies who get interviewed towards the end of the book here who are like, she was running so fast because she's in love are like major characters in book two, which I hadn't really like put together, but cause he was just like, well, we need these two ladies. And I already showed these two ladies <laughs> like getting interviewed and there's only supposed to be 2000 people in this town. So as much right. as possible, it's like, let's, let's make it feel like even if you don't know exactly who everybody is, everybody kind of like you at least recognize, which does kind of like really capture that sort of small town vibe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, one of the potencies of the sort of acting, like we were talking about, is, like, even though... I, I, w- I can't even call it cartoony, because the main thing is just, like, the usually someone's eye is a dot, is uh-huh. the main thing. Like, just, like, a big black dot. But the, then it's, The like, sort of Tintin eye. Yes, the Tintin eye. And when, for some reason, when Sam, like, puts on the glasses, he really was giving off Tintin for me. I do think he's got some Tintin in his general inspiration. Tom Swift is kind of, like, the big one. But, yeah, I think I think there's some Tintin in him for sure. Sure. Is there a little Tintin in him? <laughs> uh, but, like, because, like, every face is so fully rendered, and that sort of helps towards, like, what we were talking about with acting, where it's, like, you can get micro expressions across so much more thoroughly when it's like you are rendering like the way someone's face is creasing mm-hmm. when they make a certain expression yeah it's like and and like another thing that he talks about or me one of them talks about also is like imagine if an actor could like change the shape of their face or like right. change what their eyes look like how much more like expressive and emotive you can be and then it's like well one of the advantages of comics is that like you can just like change the shape of a character's face to sort of like, you know, rearrange their features to to communicate whatever you're trying to do. And it's certainly possible to like overact in that way, I guess. But for the most part, and I think especially in a book like this where a part like it's 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 balancing naturalism and more sort of like heightened scenes, taking advantage of that kind of like expressionistic warping of the face to like contribute to the heightening effect in those heightened moments is just like a smart thing to do that makes sense and like is is good art yeah and like another thing i notice is especially with older people like it almost does it it sort of it sort of gets into the idea of like the the normal grotesque if that makes sense yeah because like there's definitely like as many disgusting people who are just like normal guys as there are like the missing men are obviously are like really gross and like we men is really gross and (laughs) things like that yeah and i think like that just gets across what the book is about so clearly because it is so about much about like what seems to be normal but is actually grotesque and like you're sort of rendering these people who are like ostensibly normal people but like rendering them in such specific grotesque ways Mm -hmm. that it like 
heightens that so so effectively yeah and even just like thinking about that like there's the guy who they meet at like the pizza place who then later like gets trapped in the dunk tank and ends up uh in the hospital he is written with like this very heavy maritime accent or i think like probably even acadian accent potentially and then he has like you know he gives this accounting of like people think like nobody ever dies in this town but like i've been around a long time and here's this like list of all the times that a bunch of people have died and it was really bad blah 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 all in you know this this like heavily stylized accent and the lettering is all kind of like crazy and he looks really crazy and then you get like the reverse shot of sam with his mouth full of pizza saying i can't understand any purple <laughs> where it's just kind of like I, I don't know. It like it kind of first invites you to be like, look at how, like how grotesque this person is, but then like undercuts it by with this like joke with Sam like talking with his mouth full and like, I, I, yeah, I don't know. The engagement with just sort of like the whole maritime culture, and I think especially for the purposes of like this one little beat, playing with kind of like the big city perception of you know, rural people generally. And I think especially in terms of like kind of the broader Canadian context, like the, the stereotypical Newfie is, is something that is, yeah, I I think like the Newfie is sort of like the, the total encapsulation of like the dumb hick Maritimer in terms of like, you know, being the subject of like Newfie jokes is like its own subgenre. But I, I think like playing with that perception is like is a big part of this. Like I said, I think like there's some interesting ideas about um, like the indigenous communities in the Maritimes. I think there's like some allusions to some colonial stuff, especially with the Pioneer Days Parade that they do more yeah. they do more with in the subsequent book. But it is very much like CanCon and like especially like maritime Canadian tinged in a lot of ways beyond just being like it's set in nova scotia yeah and even like the humor does feel like i mean like there's a bit of the hark of vagrant type beat mm-hmm. but it is like i feel like that also like stems very much from like the classic like maritime especially but it's just like super dry canadian humor yeah and like the the way that just like something being stated fl- very flatly can be very funny mm-hmm very good stuff. I'm just flipping through trying to see if there's any other particular things I want to talk about. The ending, of course, I think is like perfect. The juxtaposition the of like, yeah, well, just especially like the very, very end where like when you open with after the the first sort of like scene that shows Max Finch's kidnapping, you open with uh, like a sort of series of these like establishing shots of Hobtown and then like kind of zoom in on Sam riding his bike into town and he rides his pass his his bike past a sign that says welcome to Hobtown population 2000 the coastal paradise but then there's like a little text box that says Hobtown Nova Scotia population 2006 and then at the very end you get the uh the like pizza place guy who you also saw on the way in, he like walks out to the edge of town with his like walking stick past the pizza place and clean and happy past the propeller club, past the game club. And like, like you see the mayor campaigning with a brochure that says same town, (laughs) same mayor, which I feel like is like, again, one of those things where it's like, this is funny, but then also in the context of like this book is also like very chilling in its way. 
Anyways, he walks all the way out to the end of town and then again past the sign, which is now mirrored by a text box that also says Hoptown, Nova Scotia, population 2000. And then the last panel is the funky shawarma <laughs> being like, <laughs> just just to say like six people isn't like that many and like it's just going to happen again. Yes. Which I think in terms of like nailing like the horror of it, nailing how kind of like unsettling it is it's just like a good it's a good bookend for how we opened it up and also just like a good excuse to kind of like take you through Hobtown and kind of like remind you of like everything that happened and then to end on this reminder of like this is why it's happened and while they have like wrapped up this cycle they haven't done anything that's going to prevent it from happening again is just like yeah very very dismay as horror type uh, type beat Right, and also immediately before that, you get <laughs> them playing "Build Me a Butter." Yes, of course. Which is, <laughs> which is but now with it. Dana on the guitar, also the revelation that Coach Wood is a member of the Game Club, just like is also really good. He's uh, he's just a good character. Who do I think he looks like? Um, he just he I looks like um, I think I think it might be like one of the over um, King of the Hill characters. <laughs> Sure, yeah. He, he's a he looks like uh, a Boomhauer. Yeah. Or whichever one it is. Or Dale. Dale, the know. one with the like aviators. I, I think it is. Oh, no, I no, think... you're right. I, yeah, he I don't looks know. like Boomhauer. <laughs> like sort of like tan blonde one. Yeah. And and just like his whole design where like he's wearing gym shorts, but then also like a button down shirt and a sweater vest. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, it's it's. A book that I would say, <laughs> just, just like, just the idea that the coach is seeing it happen <laughs> is so funny. It just is a book that feels like it rewards you on like every page, whether just like for reading or for like paying close attention. There's just like something on every single page that is like fills me with pleasure, and there's not many books that you can. Uh, that you can say that about yeah and it's like an insanely easy read like i was sort of like going through pretty quick Mm -hmm. and i probably took me like an hour Mm -hmm. it is very much like as i was wrapping it up i was thinking about how like when we were talking about the parker books you were saying like i feel like i just watched a good movie and like i don't necessarily always get that but i did finish this and was like i feel like i just watched like a really good movie (laughs) i was like you know, mostly in jest, but was like, I should try and make a spec script of this. (laughs) Just like, to see how it sort of plots out. Because I do feel like it is like, it's not, it doesn't really feel like a movie, but like the sort of the way that the dramatic structure sort Mm -hmm. of like works out is very like cinematic. I mean like that, the final encounter with the missing men at the, uh, the Nance Nance house. house. And, like, all the, like, there's so many great, like, action beats in that. Yeah. Dana has a crossbow. He rides the motorcycle out of the window. Like, there's just so much good stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, it is, it's just very, like, like you said, like, kind of self-assured and, and, like, knows exactly what it is in a lot of places. And I think makes, like, really good storytelling choices where like I think the sequence that really comes to mind for me is right before they find the um, like town council lady whose body has been stuffed into the chimney and uh, Pauline has that like the premonition of what's about to happen and she's describing it to Dana as it like unfolds behind her I feel like a 
not necessarily a lesser artist, but the kind of like stock thing to do would be just to have like the one panel that's like close on Pauline and she's wide eyed and saying the first thing. And then you like switch to follow Sam really closely while her kind of narrative continues in like the boxes. And then you come back to her at the end. So to instead have it be on her and Dana the whole time and just having Sam like doing the stuff in the background where like you can't necessarily see exactly what he's doing. And yet like you know that he is doing exactly what she's saying because we've had these sort of like teases previously that she has some sort of like kind of supernatural sensitivity or awareness or like mild precognition type of uh, thing going on. Then instead of like having it like cut back to her and be like, and like my scared face is kind of like the big thing. It's like, it lets you have the chimney with the like hand and foot sticking out of it be the big thing, which is like such a grotesque image. And then like the dog attack is also like a really good action sequence. And like, the whole like like Dana's breakdown afterwards is such a good like character moment, such a well like quote unquote acted sequence. It's just a very good book that I like so much. Yeah, and it often makes really good use of that kind of thing where like you're seeing minimal changes in the panels, like either like uh, in like a shot reverse shot way, or in, like a sort of scene where you're seeing it play out on like a sort of a static a static shot, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does really well to play with that stuff. Uh, and, you know, obviously, like, that sort of, like, those beats are very much in keeping with the humor as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, very good. I know, um, in terms of, like, adaptations, like I said, Jason Manzuk is a very big fan, and I think at one point was, like, trying to figure out, like, how he could possibly, like, develop it for a series or something like that. Sure. I also know that Chris Burton's, uh, or Chris Burton, rather, singular, in addition to, like, he he writes these comics, but he's also a literary writer and he's also a screenwriter. So it wouldn't surprise me if, like, a spec script for this is out there, <laughs> whether written by him or written by someone who, like, might have put it together as part of that sort of, like, development pitch or what have you. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a funny thing where I feel like a lot of times you have something that feels so special as a comic and then in translation to screen, it just feels like kind of like another movie and the magic of it kind of gets sucked out somehow. Like, I feel like the big thing I think of that for that is Whiteout um, by Greg Rucka and Steve Lieber, which then subsequently <laughs> became the Mila Jovovich joint. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Dun, 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 dun. But that is like a like, you know, three out of five, like local newspaper rated staple of like, it's fine. Like it's not changing any lives. Not that the comic is necessarily changing any lives either, but I feel like the comic is this like no perfect crime story that Mm -hmm. in translation to film becomes just like kind of like, you know, a movie. And I do feel like this is in some ways at risk for that. Yeah. Well, the thing is like, it's it's it sort of gets back to the idea of like well it's sort of like the basic idea of the co- podcast really which is like the idea of comics auteurism in the same way that we have film auteurism and that like no one could make this comic except for these two guys and so why would we expect that someone could make a movie that captures the same voice of the comics mm-hmm. when the uh, the person who's making the movie does not have that same authorial voice that the people who made it do yeah like, And just kind of like the tragedy of sort of like it doesn't even like matter how much you love like the source material and are trying to like 
bring it faithfully to life, there's just like still that risk of like just failing yeah. in that regard or, or the reality that like, just because you love it doesn't mean you're going to be allowed to do it or that it's going to be practical to do it in the way that you want to do it or, you know, kind of what, what have you, as far as that goes, like there's so many things that can kill something in terms of like bringing a, a translation either that's like just faithful in terms of content or in terms of spirit and tone. Yeah. Spirit. Spirit. Um, do you think this came out in 2017, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's a coincidence that the 2017 San Antonio Spurs had two rookies that were Davis Bertons and Bryn Forbes? <laughs> I do think that. Um, <laughs> uh, Davis Bertons, what a guy. Yeah. You know that Davis Bertans averaged 15 points a game in 2020? I did know that because that's how he got like a $90 million contract. <laughs> <laughs> 15 points per game and like 45% from three or something like that. Um, yeah. Like some, some insane number anyways. Yeah. I do <laughs> also think that one of the things that makes this like quite special is that it's like highly collaborative where I was listening to them talk about it and it was originally something that Forbes was doing solo and Burton got involved because he they're they're like besties and he was like I'm working on this thing but like how do you write a good mystery <laughs> like how do you make a mystery like compelling because he had wanted to do these sort of like takes on the um I think it's like the Sotomayor publishing group or publishing syndicate something like that that did all the like hey, they should change their name. <laughs> I'm gonna double check myself on that quickly. I feel like I'm close but not quite right on. Is that like Sonia or is it like... <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, uh, oh, Stratemeyer. Edward Stratemeyer. Okay, okay. <laughs> Anyways, he had wanted to do something evocative of like the Stratemeyer publishing stories, which include, of course, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and um, Tom Swift and many others who are less recognizable. And, and was just basically consulting him of like, how do you write like a good mystery? And then as he was like kind of giving input, they were sort of like, well, why don't you just like write it? Uh, but it's like so very much based on like images and themes and ideas that Forbes had been interested in like kind of pursuing and chasing down. And they talk about how like even now, like kind of further along there are characters in it that were like some were originally kind of conceived or created by Forbes. Then some were brought in and added in later by Burton. And they now are like, we can't even remember like who kind of originally conceived these things, but they are both like really putting a lot into it, both in terms of yeah, theme tone content and like the, the original inspiration of it being from the artist as something that he was working on solo, I think makes it, you know, I, uh, underground and independent comics are always going to be more collaborative than something that's a bit more commercial or a bit more corporate comics. Um, but I do think that this is uh, like truly collaborative beyond what even a lot of independent comics tend to be. Yeah. And just to, we haven't even really talked about like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys cover art. Oh yeah, which and is the way that that sort of like it that it's sort of evoking that as well. Yeah, the cover design is pretty great um, in terms of kind of aping that that whole style. And and I think what they sort of described the original idea as was being like you see like the covers of like these Nancy Drew stories, which are so evocative and seem so kind of like eerie. 
And then the story inside kind of like never lives up to that right. that implication. And then they were like, what if the story inside was as evocative and as eerie as what's on the cover? And that was kind of like the launching point, uh, I guess, for Forbes. But yeah, I, I love the design of, uh, of the covers of these, which are, like I said, very much in that style, very much kind of aping the the Nancy Drew of it all specifically. Yeah, even even the spine. Like, I don't know if the yeah. original printing had like the the one or like any of this stuff, but like it did, the, the little boldly. logo. That's really good because like the logo and the numbering is like so evocative of mm-hmm. Nancy Drew as well. Where like I think there's like a little flashlight logo that's on the spine of all of those as well. Like, yeah, it's so in keeping with that style. Even the font. Yep. Really reminds me of it as well. And it resonates with people to the point that when I was looking at this tweet where they announced like the next three titles and the move to Oni, like the first reply is like, sounds great. Will you be keeping the cover design? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like Burton who had tweeted about it. And he was basically just like, I just write them like the cover design is up to uh, up to Alex and Oni. But, you know, (laughs) no plans to change it. And I do think that like. Yeah, it just it just does a lot of like legwork right off the top as far as kind of getting you into the headspace for what um, what you're getting into. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Ooh, man, I just found out that uh, third one is going to be called The Secret of the Saucer. Yes, it is okay. a, a UFO story. Told in reverse chronological order. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk more about some of like the kind of what's next as far as this goes when we do the cursed hermit after the Walden series. But um, yeah, it's it's they seem to delight in defying expectations and continuing to sort of like keep things fresh. And so I think that you will be surprised when we get to the cursed hermit and are like this is what they do after kind of like this very sort of like triumphant debut first um first book it's it's kind of like a counterintuitive choice which i think they relish but uh but yeah sales wise no numbers available that i could find (laughs) sure i mean the other thing that this really made me think of in terms of like the way that it's presented and sort of compiled and the length of it and stuff is like what we sort of talked about like the darwin cook mm-hmm. where like this is very much like bookstore crossover fodder it feels yeah like. you would think so um i think i did actually get my copy at a bookstore but yeah conundrum press certainly is like the kind of publisher that you expect to find under the literary graphic novels section of like a chapters or or what have you yeah or the like you like they would have this at your library yeah, and stuff like that. Definitely. Um, it was also the winner of uh, the Doug Wright Award, which is, of course, uh, a, a CanCon honor, a CanConner, if you will, taking, uh, I believe, the 2018, no, the 2017, no. <laughs> Did it win or was it just nominated? Now I'm second guessing myself. Nominated. Oh, no, that's a cursed hermit. Spoilers for next time. Nominated in 2018 for the Doug Wright Spotlight Award, a.k.a. The Nipper, losing out to Magical Beatdown Volume 2 and Marie and Worry Wart by Jen Woodall. Cheers. Haven't read it. Have to say, like I said, I don't know. I I think I do like this more than you. 
I I like it a lot. I don't Certainly. mean to say that. I, like, I mean, it's a real, you know, it's a classic. I feel like it's it maybe is, like a, a four and a half star for me, a five right. star for you. And I do think. think that part of that is that like this is very much in the David zone where like just the whole sort of like uh, the detective of it all, like the deconstruction yeah. of like a children's genre of it all, like how pulpy and kind of like rooted in genre it is, but with some more sort of like literary aspirations overlaid on top of it. It is probably a little bit more in my wheelhouse than yours, even just in terms of how the horror is kind of like, this is pretty weird, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I mean, the other thing that I just thought of was uh, was Brick, the movie. Yeah, that is also is, a good example of one where it's like, you like that movie, I'm like, this is an amazing movie <laughs> because it is, yeah, anytime, anytime there's like uh, a pastiche of a genre that also serves as like a highly competent entry into the genre, it is right. like ostensibly making a joke about that is like an instant <laughs> five star for me basically and not just like i don't think that this this has a little too much of like the kind of horror and and deconstruction to really be like uh a children's book <laughs> per right. se like you can it's not something where it's like it's trying to be like it's it's elevated but you could also give it to like the the audience yeah. to read. Like like Brick is just like a Sam Spade movie except like he's at high school yeah. instead of like the mean streets of LA or whatever. Whereas this like I think that this is very much a worthy kind of successor but it is not intended for the same audience so it doesn't quite meet that kind of like exact same description. But like I think if you replaced these characters with the like if instead of like Nancy or, or um, Dana and Sam and like Brennan and uh, Denny, it was Nancy Drew, Tom Swift and the Hardy Boys. Like I think fans of those characters would be like, this is awesome, <laughs> basically. They must be trying to make a Hardy verse movie. I'm right? pretty sure they made a Hardy Boys TV show. Nancy Drew has had so many like. Like she was in a like kind of CW style show. She got a comic reboot. I think they were doing a Hardy Boys something. Yeah. Then there is a Nancy Drew CW series. I am seeing, of course, here Rohan Campbell and Alexander Elliott as the Hardy Boys. Season two dropped in April. And there's a Tom Swift series. Oh, hey. Canceled after one season. Alas. I do think like Tom Swift is kind of a tier but like nancy drew and the hardy boys are really the ones sure, with like sure, sure. name recognition where like if like a mom who's like anywhere from like 65 to like 45 sees like a nancy drew show they're like oh honey you gotta watch this i loved these when i was a kid sure um whereas like and tom swift doesn't really have that sort of same like cultural permeation and also is like more pulpy more genre yeah which you sort of see in in hobtown in the way that like sam like has like the fidge phone and yeah like he is a little bit goes off in that different direction yeah he's got like some D- doc savage in him or some like johnny quest in him or like yeah. peter cannon thunderbolt is <laughs> like the guy i often think of who is more kind of fully into the superhero era but yeah that that's he is kind of like a proto science hero in training at this point yeah exactly i'm seeing that lavar burton was the voice of barkley and in artificial intelligence <laughs> fascinating uh, 
And of course, it's not called the Hardyverse. It's called the Druniverse. Of course. Nancy Drew, again, like, if if Tom Swift is a tier below Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, like, clearly, like, Nancy Drew is 1A to the Hardy Boys 1B in terms of, like, popularity and recognition as well, I would say. Sure. Absolutely. Anything else? Um, no, other than to say that next week we will be on Walden Pond, so to speak. Um <laughs> diving into our Tilly Walden miniseries in earnest. Um, be- Tilly Tilly. <laughs> <laughs> Tilly Tilly, take this pilly. Um, we are going to be starting with the Alone in Space collection, which collects a bunch of her earliest works. Uh, I am going to see if I can pull it up here and give the specific ones because they can also be found individually. We will be covering... The End of Summer, I Love This Part, and A City Inside, which are the kind of core core stories um, in this, although there are also some additional short comics and web comics and things like that that uh, she worked on kind of prior to becoming published. But uh, a quick overview of the early career of Tilly Walden, which is funny to say because she's like 26. And didn't she also co-write I Hate This Part Right Here by the Pussycat Dolls? Yeah, can't speak to it. Um, <laughs> I know that she is trying to become a member of Pussy Riot. Is that true? And no. <laughs> I just famously Goo Goo Dolls, Pussycat Dolls, and Pussy Riot are in like sure. a weird triangle in my head where I always am sort of like, I'm not really sure... I know that they're distinct, but couldn't be like, of course, this is what makes them distinct. The Pussycat Dolls are crazy because they started as like a burlesque show. Uh And then Jimmy Iovine was like, you should take this mainstream. (laughs) And so they turned it into like a girl group. And now Pussy Riot is like... They're like a the political thing? activists. Right. <laughs> I, but they're, they're a band, right? They're ostensibly a band. Yes, they're okay. ostensibly a band. I have, don't think I've ever met anyone who actually listens to their music. Feminist protest and performance art group that became popular yeah. for its provocative punk rock music, which later turned into a more accessible style. Sounds like they sold out. Yeah, that's what I think of. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Sellouts? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. But so we will be on to Tilly Walden next week. Looking forward to get into the getting into those comics. You haven't read anything by her, I uh, presume. <laughs> well, we will uh, have much to say, I'm sure, about her. But uh, but we'll save it for next week. We absolutely will. And I must thank you all for listening. I must implore you to rate and review and subscribe. To follow us on Twitter at gottherunspod at gmail.com. To send us an email at gottherunspod at gmail.com. You can follow me at chousenjin on Twitter. Listen to High Floor Low Ceiling, of course. Listen to Bevy of Bevies, of course. Just recorded a great episode, which I think should be out by now. Uh, I already forget what we drank. So, enjoy that one. Uh, (laughs) Thank you all for listening. I know I said that, but I want to say it again. We appreciate you. And until next time. To to be continued. continued. You're really shouting. Just matching your volume.
which is through the roof and I can't turn down. Check for freaking death 